This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 4, looking tonight at verses 1 through 24, the chapter, Judges chapter 4. We've gotten into Judges, the initial introductory section that uh, really sets up the book showing how Israel, instead of wiping out the Canaanites fully, as the Lord had instructed, uh, intermingled with them, settled among them, allowed them to remain under their uh, domination uh, as, as slaves, and yet they were still there, and their pagan religion was still there, and it had its cancerous effect as it spread into Israel. This evening, we are uh, looking at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, a Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanzanim, uh, Zananim, rather, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! This is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down with Mount, from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. 
And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand, and then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you were seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you indeed for this passage, and we ask for your grace as we study it this evening for alert minds and warm hearts, Lord, to think about uh, this passage, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Behind every good man you will find a good woman. Almost always true. Not universally true, but almost always true, and certainly seems to be the case in this chapter before us. Uh, This is undoubtedly a somewhat unusual chapter in Scripture, if only for its emphasis upon uh, female leadership and female action. Now, we need to say right up front, there's nothing in this chapter that makes it a manifesto for feminism. Uh, There are even some who have suggested that this was co-opted from some uh, Deborah cult that uh, wanted to, to glorify Deborah. Uh, you get a lot of strange ideas sometimes in the, the world of biblical scholarship, especially modern biblical scholarship. It is true. Deborah is judging Israel, leading Israel, and there's really no comment made about that. There's no observation about the fact that it is a woman doing it. However, as we'll see, uh, the passage does seem to comment a little bit about lack of male leadership, lack of initiative uh, among the, well, at least one particular man in this chapter. But there's no doubt about it. It's the women who are making it happen, who are getting it done here in this passage, at least on the human level. But as with other passages in Judges, it's more than just about the human level. So as we look at this chapter, and, and we'll be revisiting this, Lord willing, next time in chapter 5, uh, which essentially retells this account with some different details included and omitted in verse form, in a, in a celebratory kind of poem. So we'll have another chance to look at this from a little different perspective, Lord willing, the next time, kind of like the 
passage of Israel through the Red Sea and the destruction of Egypt's army and the uh, the song of Miriam that they celebrate in, Acts, in Exodus uh, 15, the celebration of that triumph. And actually parallels have been drawn between what happens in chapter 4 and the, the verse celebration in chapter 5 and that situation with the Exodus. But that's Lord willing next week. Today, uh, we're looking at chapter 4. And as we look at this account, see in the first place, it describes here uh, once again, the need for salvation. Now, we looked last time at Ehud, this man who uh, took matters into his own hands, having delivered tribute to Eglon, uh, king of Moab. He then returns with a secret message for the king, and the king uh, sends everyone out. They end up in a secret audience where Ehud, the left-handed uh, deliverer, whips out his his dagger and uh, puts a violent end to Eglon and escapes and rallies Israel and they throw off the rule of Moab. Chapter 3, verse 30, subdued, Moab was subdued under the hand of Israel. The land had rest for 80 years. And then there's that uh, almost a footnote about Shamgar who seemed to have uh, apparently a brief tenure as a leader. In fact, chapter 4 doesn't pick up with Shamgar, it picks up with Ehud. So he doesn't make much of a splash. He knows he's included in one verse in Scripture, which in the great scheme of things is pretty huge. Have your name in the Bible, even if it's only one verse. But uh, it doesn't make much of him. But the land has rest through Ehud for 80 years. That's, you know, a lifetime. That's a long time. And once again, it is an opportunity for Israel to reconsider its ways, to examine its idolatry, and you see hints of that in chapter 3, where Ehud turns back, verse 19, at the idols near Gilgal and and returns. And then he he escapes, he makes it back to the idols and and gets beyond. You get the, 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 the picture that Israel has these places of idolatry that are there, and, and the silence in, in, in commenting on them at all, other than just to mention them, is, is pretty deafening. But 80 years under Ehud, they, they have rest because of him, because of his deliverance. But then notice in chapter 4, verse 1, we re-enter that, that downward slope of the judge's cycle. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The language is almost like that of a relapse. In revival circles today, we might call it, they were backslid. They were beginning to backslide. They relapsed. Uh, there's There's sort of a note of reproach in that word again. Here they had been delivered. Here they had rest for 80 years. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Read Baal worship. Asherah worship. Again, these Canaanite fertility cults, uh, agricultural fertility cults, involve all kinds of uh, not only idolatry, but in the process, uh, immorality as part of the worship ritual. But notice, uh, there's this oppression that that arises. Verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Again, there's that, that slavery Image. He sold them into his hands. If he sell, like Joseph being sold into slavery, he gives them, he sells them into this oppression under Jabin, 
commander of his army, uh, as we become acquainted with him, was Sisera. And so physically, they, they, because of their sin and the Lord's response to the sin, fall back under the oppression of Canaanites, of, of foreign powers. Uh, again, the, the conquerors become the conquered. So physically, they once again are in a situation where they need salvation. But of course, it's much deeper than that. Spiritually, they once again uh, demonstrate their need of salvation. Notice what happens in verse 1. They did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Why? Because Ehud was that external restraint holding back the spread, the creep, the growth of evil. Because their righteousness was not something that arose from within, it was something imposed on them from the outside. And so once that restraint is gone, once Ehud departs from the scene, the true nature of their hearts begins to reveal itself. Uh, this is not a, a, an unfamiliar situation in our own day. You see this uh, on, a, on a small scale, often with children who grow up in a Christian home and go away, go off by themselves for the first time, and that restraint of their parents is removed, and they go berserk. Because the righteousness had been imposed from the outside. Uh, again, as we said before, our children's need is not to ape our behavior. It is to be converted. They need new hearts so that God-honoring, Christ-glorifying behavior comes from the heart. And whether anyone's imposing it or not, they obey in godly ways. It's interesting. Remember Gene Veith used to write for World Magazine. I uh, heard him give a lecture one time talking about the 9-11 terrorists. And uh, how a number of them had had left the Middle East, had been in Europe, out of that Islamic context, and got involved in pornography, got involved in strip clubs, and their terrorist actions in jihad were a way of atoning for their sins. You know, if you die in holy war, you go to paradise. You're covered. You're atoned. For, and, of course, Beeth asked the question, you know, what if they knew that someone had already died for sins, that they could have taken refuge in, in Christ, of course. Uh, but again, that, that external restraint of Muslim society is removed, and all bets are off, and they go crazy. But it's not just outward compulsion. I mean, that, that's true. Uh, that's there. And, and there is a sense in which we need accountability from one another. But the fact is, we shouldn't need to have righteousness imposed on us from the outside. If your heart is regenerate and right with Christ, then that behavior should come from the inside. But it's not just compulsion, it's observation. Just having other people around can change the way we behave. Um, as, as Christians, when you're around each other, when you're around family or whatever, do you behave in one way? But when you're alone or when you are uh, somewhere else, do you behave in another way? It was uh, Lord Nelson of the British Navy who said, beyond Gibraltar, every man is a bachelor. What was his point? His point was, once you leave the constraints of familiar civilization, 
many men's behavior changes drastically. Why? Because it's not compelled from the outside. It's not observed. And so they behave in, in very different ways than they would behave at home in jolly old England. And that's the kind of thing that is going on here after Ehud died. Let me ask you this. Do you require outward compulsion? Do you at least require outward observation to behave in Christ's honoring ways? You need to examine your heart, because that's exactly where Israel was. Once the restraint was gone, they're back worshiping Baal. So that's the need there. It's certainly an outward need, their outward oppression, but that reflects an even deeper need, that their hearts are not right. Now, what is the source of salvation in this passage? Uh, where does it come from? Well, the chapter is quite clear. Uh, it comes from the Lord. Look at verses 6 and 7. Verse 4 introduces Deborah simply as a prophetess. She's married. She's the wife of a man named Lapidoth. Uh, she was judging Israel. She was leading and tells where she used to sit and hold court. People would come to her to have matters decided and uh, sort of functioning a little bit like Moses did in that way, but doing what she should be doing as the leader of Israel. Well, it doesn't say why. It just says that she sent and summoned Barak to come to her, meet with her, and it tells us who he is. And she just says to him, hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, grab 10,000 people, um, which is, is to counter the uh, the force that's against them, these 900 chariots of iron and so forth Sisera had. Uh, verse 7, I'll draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I'll give him into your hand. Hasn't the Lord told you to do that? Well, maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. We don't know. Nothing's been mentioned of it yet. But if he hasn't before, he has now through Deborah. And if he had before, Deborah's saying, come on, man, get with it. Hasn't the Lord told you to do this? So right away, the instigation for this is on the human level is coming from Deborah. You know, and the Lord told you to do this? Well, maybe he has. We don't know. Hasn't said anything about it, but she apparently thinks he has. And uh, so... What's he doing? He's lollygagging. He's not getting it done. So she sort of just almost starts out with Barak being encouraged to uh, do what she's what, what he is supposed to do. Now, it's, but, but notice the emphasis is on the Lord. Hasn't the Lord said he will do this, told you to do this? And hasn't the Lord said that he will do it? I will give him into your hand. It's nothing quite like going into battle knowing the outcome from the beginning. But then you move down to verse 14, which really, in terms of the structure of the passage, is right at the center, kind of right at the, the, the apex, the heart of the passage. Verse 14, And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So there's these instructions to Barak in verses 6 and 7, and then there's this declaration of, of victory in 14a, this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. There's no doubt of the outcome. The spite is 900 chariots of iron. But also verse 14b, second part of the verse 14, does not the Lord go out before you? Now, we've encountered this theme uh, before, earlier in the scriptures, in Exodus, you know, with, with the crossing of the Red Sea. And you encounter it later. 
The fact that the Lord goes before his people. He is their champion. He is the one who fights and wins their battle, much as David went out before the Israelite army and took on the Philistine champion, Goliath, and defeats him. The emphasis here on the Lord as the warrior who fights for his people. Now, for some people, that's kind of an offensive thought. I like the way uh, Ralph Davis, in his commentary on Judges, puts it. He tells a story of Teddy Roosevelt, who, when he was a student at Harvard, taught a Sunday school class. And one day, this boy comes to him in the class. He's got a black eye, and he admitted, yes, he'd, he'd been in a fight. Uh, he'd been in a fight on Sunday, no less. A bigger boy, he said, been pinching his sister, and he got into a fight with him. Uh, to defend his sister. And Teddy said, you did perfectly right, and gave the boy a dollar. Well, the vestryman thought that was just going too far and released Roosevelt from his Sunday school duties. Was it? Was it wrong that he commended this boy for defending his sister? He was willing to fight and even suffer. Well, again, it kind of goes back to this this sort of... Uh, this, this idea that, that theology and the Bible and even God himself is supposed to be sort of wimpy, uh, gentle, soft, you know, a pushover. Um, but that's not the God of Scripture. Uh, and it's not that we go out looking for a fight. It's not that we go out being obnoxious and just getting into brawls and being, being uh, contrary and difficult with people. Not at all. We also need to recognize that God is no wimp. He is portrayed often in the Scripture and throughout the Scripture as a warrior. Again, Ralph Davis describes him, the strength of Israel is not the soft, wimpy, graven image of the current Western imagination. He says the only real hope of God's afflicted people, whether then or now, is in a strong Lord who in righteousness judges and makes war, reference there to Revelation Chapter 19. And so in this passage, as is throughout Judges, the, the deliverer is not really the judge, ultimately. It is, of course, the Lord who both brings oppression to his people to chasten them and then raises up the deliverer to rescue them. Notice, by the way, a little bit of a departure from the pattern that we've seen uh, is uh, the fact that the... Um, the people here are crying out for help. It says that they are crying out specifically to the Lord for help. Uh, other, other situations, it says they cry out. Again, not really expressing repentance, but it is encouraging that they specifically focus on the Lord. They cry out to the Lord. They call it, and the name is their the Yahweh, their covenant God, for help. And the amazing thing is God does. You know, I mean... They depart, they go after their pagan gods, and then when they get in trouble, they know who to call. They call the God who lives, the God who is, the God who can act on behalf of his people. And then when it gets good, they turn back to their pornographic Canaanite religion. And so, you know, it is remarkable, God's patience and long-suffering with his people here. But it does specify that they cry out to the Lord. They call out specifically to him. Now, we look at that, and, and then we move to the means of salvation. It's true God is the source, but as you look at it, he works through people. But not the people you might expect. Notice what happens. Barak says in verse 8, 
If you will go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I will not go. You got to wonder if the committee didn't show up and threaten to take away his man card for that one. What, what, what's the deal with Barak? You know, I'll go, Deborah, as long as you go with me and, and, you know, hold my hand. Well, maybe more to it than that. Deborah was not only the leader of Israel, she was a prophetess. And it's possible Barak saw in that some assurance of the Lord's presence, of the Lord's blessing, uh, on this endeavor. Um, you sense reluctance. Verse nine, she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, which at this point we think is going to be Deborah. But of course, it turns out that's not the case. But the very fact that the glory here goes to a woman, she presents as something of a reproach to Barak. Uh, the glory won't be yours. In fact, it's going to go to a woman. Uh, ultimately, the glory goes to the Lord. But it is true on the human level that that is something of a reproach to him. Uh, she has to encourage him to do what he's supposed to do. Then she has to go with him, so he'll go do what he's supposed to do. And she says, okay, but the glory uh, for this victory will go to a woman. So she arises and she goes. They uh, rally 10,000 men and they all set out. And suddenly we're hit with this bit of apparently pointless trivia in verse 11. We go from getting ready for battle to some guy with his U-Haul making a move. Verse 11. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites. Sounds like a family feud. Didn't want to live with them anymore. The descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. Meanwhile, back to the war. When Cicero was told that, you know, okay, what on earth? You know? What's going on here? Well, this becomes important, as we see later. But it it shows us God's providence. I mean, yes, it's meaningless. Except it comes into play later because that puts Heber the Kenite and Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, in the right place at the right time. When I was in seminary, after Barbara and I got married, we got the thought that we'd like to move to Philadelphia and go to school at Westminster Seminary. Uh, I was thinking about the possibility of trying to get into postgraduate work, and uh, Westminster is a a very strong school academically. And um, I don't know, maybe we've just been married, we'd married, and we're still living in Mississippi and thought somewhere else exotic like Philadelphia uh, would be a fun place to live. But we wound up moving up to Philadelphia. And had a great year there. Enjoyed studying at Westminster. Made some good friends. Uh, enjoyed living in the Northeast uh, and experiencing Christianity outside of its southern context. And all that was great. But while I was there, I really realized that my heart was not for the classroom. It was for the pulpit. And uh, we wound up deciding to return to Jackson, um, which in some ways was a hard move. It was kind of going backwards, although there were some things that the Lord did that confirmed that was really the right thing to do. Some things that really fell into place, uh, as well as opportunities to preach and so forth. But we looked at Philadelphia and thought, well, you know, interesting detour. Uh, you know, that's what the Lord was doing. And he brought us back here. And here we go. 
Well, as it turns out, while we were in Philadelphia, Barbara wound up working for Great Commission Publications, uh, working under Tom Petit, who was the executive director then, as he is now. Uh, now it's, of course, right over there off Beaver Highway, uh, under Lee Benner, who was there. And so we got to know the Benners, got to know the Petits uh, through that connection. Well, we wound up moving to Jackson, finished seminary. That next year, GCP winds up moving to Atlanta. We graduate and go to South Carolina, and uh, we'd been there for several years where I would assist an assistant, and I happened to be at General Assembly summer of 1994, and Lee Benner was there for GCP. And he said, well, you know, we're looking for a pastor. Why don't you send us a data form, old Peachtree? So I did. I didn't hear anything for a number of months, uh, and then I heard from the pulpit committee. Now, I look at our going to Westminster, which seemed like sort of a parenthesis in our lives. It went off for a year of school in the Northeast. But, you know, humanly speaking, that time in Westminster, we got to know uh, the Benners and the Petites, who at that time were Old Peachtree, and Old Peachtree was looking for a pastor. And otherwise, I never would have had a clue who Lee Benner was, and he never would have known who I was. So you could say that the Lord took us all the way to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to make connections that later would come about through his providence in bringing me to this church. What looks trivial may not be trivial. In fact, in God's providence, nothing is ever trivial. Heber the Kenite had separated, and he pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zenonim, which is near Kedesh, which was how the Lord liberated his people. Well, we see Deborah, we see Barak, and then they go in verse 12. Uh, they engage this battle. Sisera calls out his chariots, 900 of them, all the men who were with him. And uh, Deborah says to Barak, look, the Lord's given him in your hands. Get up there and go fight him. And he does. In verse 15, the Lord routs Sisera and all his chariots and all his army by the edge of the sword. Sisera got down and ran. While his army is being decimated, Sisera escapes. He takes off running. The Bible makes no comment on that, but you have to think, hmm. Again, the silence is uh, telling. Fled away on foot. Barak went after the chariots. The army destroyed them. But Sisera fled on foot. Again, verse 17 is mentioned twice. He ran. Their leader ran. The men don't look real good in this chapter. I mean, even before he gets pegged in the head. He's running. He's fleeing the battle. His men are getting slaughtered, and he's running away. Again, the women win it in this chapter, no doubt. And so we come to the uh, the finale in verse 17, where Sisera uh, comes upon the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenai, who had moved to this location now. Well, there was peace there. And much like... Much like um, Ehud playing up Eglon, J.L. invites him in. Sure, come on in, hide in here. Uh, and so that's what she does. Turn aside, don't be afraid. So she does, she covers him with a rug, he asks for water, she actually gets a skin of milk and gives him a drink, and covers him, and he thinks everything's good, everything's going to be okay. So he says, will you stand guard? She says, sure. And he's exhausted, and he falls asleep. And she sneaks up to him with the mallet and the tent peg and nails his head to the ground. And there... He dies. 
And verse 22 is Barak was pursuing, looking for Sisera, trying to figure out where this guy to run off to. Jael comes out, says, come in here. Got something to show you. I got the man you're looking for. And Barak comes in and he finds Sisera there dead with the tent peg still in his temple. And then we have the summary. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And of Israel pressed harder and harder till they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, again, this is not a manifesto on uh, on feminism. Uh, this chapter does not undo plain teaching in Scripture about the role of men and women in the church or in their relationships to each other in marriage. It makes no comment, really, at all. Although it is obvious the men come out kind of wimpy and the women are the one pulling the shot. Sometimes it works that way. Uh, sometimes women need to put their foot in the back of their man and say, get out there and go do what the Lord has called you to do. Uh, what is this about? Is this, is this about the gruesomeness of Sisera's death? You know, someone would be revolted by that treachery. Well, the Bible doesn't comment on that. It's amazing how unconcerned the Bible is about so many things that people seem to be concerned about uh, in the Scripture. The Bible's not concerned with that. The Bible is concerned with one thing, the salvation of the Lord. And just as the Lord fought for his people that day, the Lord has fought for us and delivered us through the nail-pierced hands of the Lord Jesus himself. But we need to recognize again and learn the lesson of Judges, the pattern that sin brings misery, sin brings difficulty. But the Lord has granted us salvation. And by his grace, not be so hard-headed as the Israelites were, to forget it. But at least when they got in trouble, they knew whom to call. We need to remember that as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, uh, a fascinating passage in, in several ways. But Father, one that shows that you are the one who goes before your people, that you are the one who fights and has won the victory in Christ for your people. And you are the one who is with us and goes before us now. Father, increase our faith in you. Lord, I pray that we would walk with you when times are great. Lord, I pray that our prayers would not only be when we're in distress, when we are afraid, when we're in trouble. Uh, Lord, certainly to call on you in those times. But, uh, Father, to walk with you and call on you and serve you during the times of rest, during the times of peace, as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.